The reading today is taken from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, which um, can be found on verse, um, page 1186 of the Pew Bibles, reading from verse 1 to 16. Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, nor from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you had heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Everyone, and our thanks to Sarah and to Kath and also to Emily. And it's lovely to have Jack and Lil with us. Um, they're, of course, some of our mission partners at Broken Hill. should let you know that our senior minister, Bruce, is with another of our mission partners from BCA, that is the Fells on Norfolk Island, and he's visiting them and preaching for them across the day. I'm going to pray for us as we keep uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 open. So let's pray, and then we'll get right underway. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words to us in 1 Thessalonians 2. Help us to um, uh, just give them our full attention that we might become more like the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You'll remember Ray Galea, who visits our church uh, every January from his home in Rooty Hill. That's a suburb in the, in the western part of Sydney. You can go there. Uh, and he wrote an excellent little book reflecting on the Psalms, which is called God is Enough. It's a great book. I'm going to start today by reading from his introduction. It says Ray, I think I'm coming out of a six-year midlife crisis. I hope so anyway. I think the midlife crisis hits the moment you realise you're not going to achieve whatever goals you have set yourself in life, whether consciously or not. Time has run out. It's not going to happen. As a pastor of God's flock, he's a minister, I feel I should somehow be above such things. It's tragic how superficial my unfulfilled goal is. I want a big church. 1,000 people will do nicely, but deep down, 
I don't think it's going to happen. Now, knowing Ray just a little deep down, I reckon it could just happen, but it's very interesting and vulnerable, vulnerable disclosure, isn't it? Success for him is connected to his job. That's pretty normal for a lot of us. Um, but for him, uh, in his job or his ministry, a successful ministry equals one that is big. 1,000 people will do nicely. Successful ministry equals a big ministry. And when Ray caught himself thinking that, he was embarrassed. Now, perhaps he ought to have been. But isn't it true that most of us look at ministries or at churches, the large, and we think, man, they have really got their act together. That ministry must be pleasing to God. And depending on whether you think of ourselves as kind of being a big church or not, we can either think that, yeah, we must be pleasing to God, or actually we're not really that successful, and that must be a disappointment to God. Well, that is sort of the, the question that confronts us today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because in verse 1, I'd love you to look at this, the Apostle Paul says to the fledgling Thessalonian church, you know that our visit to you was not without results. Or in other versions, you know that our visit was not a failure. What kind of church does God think is successful? What kind of ministry does God think is a failure? What does a ministry that pleases God actually look like? And what does that mean for us as contributors to and as recipients of that ministry? Well, they, they're important questions that we're going to be asking today. This is our second week in uh, this neat little New Testament letter known as 1 Thessalonians, one of the earliest documents in our New Testaments. It's intriguing because, as Emily said, the Thessalonian church was formed by the Apostle Paul, perhaps after a visit of only three weeks, certainly no longer than three months. Very encouraging because we, as we saw last Sunday, this fledgling church established after such a short visit from the Apostle Paul really seems to be having a good crack at living the Christian life despite um, uh, you know, uh, considerable pressure. They were forged and they were formed under severe opposition. And so we've called this series Pleasing God While We Wait because that's the theme of the book, really. How do we please God while we wait for Jesus to return? And if you have a look at the graphic that we've chosen for this series, you see a guy waiting for a train. I think it's in Brazil. And if you look closely, you can see the word Seda on a sign. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. That's Portuguese for exit. But look carefully. The fellow on the platform is not exiting. In fact, he's looking the other way. He's not exiting, he's waiting. He's waiting. Now, how do we please God while we're waiting? And specifically today, what does a ministry that pleases God look like? Well, to help us answer that question from the book, uh, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm going to arrange things under four headings, okay? Uh, we're going to go for message, motives, method, and impact. Now, impact is obviously not a real word, unless you're from New Zealand. I had to find something that started with the letter M. I suppose if you're a Kiwi, you're probably going, hey, bro, what's wrong with, uh, with impact? I'm like, nothing. Okay, but, but we normally have an I in front of it. And I understand that that letter does not exist in your language. It's okay. We're going to press on anyway. Message, motives, methods. <laughs> it's hard to say it seriously. Uh, impact. Okay, so firstly for today, let's look at message. Why was the Apostle Paul's ministry, ministry to the Thessalonians not a failure, not without results? Well, it seems, despite appearances, 
it's because they still proclaim the authentic gospel message. I'd love you to read along with me in verse 2. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you Thessalonians know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. So let me give you a little bit of background. Paul and his traveling companions, Silas and Timothy, they had a rough time in Thessalonica. You can read about it in Acts chapter 17. Perhaps they'd only been teaching there across three weekends before some Jews in that town rounded up some troublemakers to form a lynch mob. They started a riot in the city. They pinned the blame squarely on Paul and his friends. It was so dangerous that the Christians there bundled Paul and Silas off to the next town in Berea under the cover of night. But when the Thessalonian Jews realized that Paul was proclaiming the gospel in Berea, they did the exact same thing to him there. So the Paul had to flee to the coast and then down to Athens. And the Thessalonian Christians in their fledgling little church would have been aware of this. But in verse 2, the Apostle Paul even references what happened to him beforehand in Philippi, before he got to Thessalonica. He had suffered and been treated outrageously there. Acts chapter 16 tells us that they were stripped naked. I mean, that's bad, isn't it? You just, I don't want that to happen to me. They were beaten badly flogged severely, jailed unjustly. You see, theirs was not a ministry that was covered in glory. It sure looked like a failure. And yet he says in verse 2, and this really is the key phrase, with God's help, we dare tell you about his gospel. It's God's gospel, you see, the message of good news. It originates and belongs to God because it's his plan of salvation for the salvation of humanity, which culminates in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's not a message that comes from the Apostle Paul and his mates. It comes from God. It's not something that he really kind of fine-tuned and, and worked out how to neatly package in the way that Apple does with technology, right? It, it comes from God. It's God's gospel. It's his message. And that, so that means it doesn't really matter about the externals, whether there's opposition or a lack of opposition, a ministry that pleases God is for mostly a ministry that proclaims his gospel as simply, as accurately, as kind of clearly and energetically as possible. Now, friends, as Christians, we are committed to doing good deeds, aren't we? We want to give ourselves to justice initiatives and social goods of all kinds. Didn't we see that in the CPX documentary? time and time and time again because belief without compassion for our fellow brother or fellow human is hollow and as Christians of course we need to grow in godliness and personal morality otherwise no one's going to see the Lord but that is a response to this message the good news that both individually and collectively as Christians, our sins and shortcomings can be forgiven because of the obedient life and sacrifice of Jesus so that we can be on right terms and in right relationship with God. And without a strong commitment to that message, a gospel ministry cannot please God. So it is about the message. Secondly today, motives also count. Motives count. A gospel ministry that pleases God is one in which motives are pure. Let's read along from verse 3 with me. It says the Apostle Paul, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. 
On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. Do you get what he's saying? Motives count. It's not just about reading a script and who cares about what's actually going on in the heart. A ministry that pleases God will be motivated by a desire to please Him. And you think, well, what other motivations could there possibly be, for goodness sake? Well, look at the list in verses 3 to 5. Impure motives. That's probably a reference to motivations for sexual gratification. It wasn't uncommon for visiting speakers in that culture to avail themselves of religious prostitutes. Yes, that was a thing. Uh, There is furthermore the motivation of greed. You can see there in verse 5 that that greed might have been a temptation. It was certainly a normal thing in that culture for visiting orators to use flattery and deceptive words in order to make a handsome speaker's fee. And maybe that's what Paul was being accused of by either local pagan or Jewish detractors in Thessaloniki. Maybe that's why he's included this whole section in the first place. You know, there were people saying to these Thessalonian Christians, Paul, maybe he just wanted your money and then he bailed on you. But friends, it's not as though these issues aren't current issues. Because I'm uh, really hip and all that, like I have an Instagram account, and, uh, and I follow, uh, uh, I don't even know what you call it, another account called Preachers and Sneakers. Preachers and Sneakers, right? And it basically looks at photographs of high-profile Christian preachers in the US and the UK, and then it goes online and works out how much their sneakers cost. Okay? So here's a picture of... Um, Pastor Sean Johnson, he's captured wearing white Nikes that cost 630 bucks. US, like that's real money, you know? In uh, this inspiring shot, Pastor um, Troy Gramlin is wearing a Versace t-shirt that looks like kind of a dragon vomited on it and it costs $775. And he's matched it to some Versace ankle boots worth over $2,000. Now, can I just say, if, if I ever walk onto this platform wearing something like that, you've got official permission to punch me twice while I'm talking. Once in the mouth, once in the throat. Boom, boom, just like that. Go for it. <laughs> Unless it's Afrofest, because then I've got to wear a shirt like that, right? Uh, By the way, this does not apply to like Emily or Kath. Did you notice they're wearing really colourful clothes? Can't do it to them, just to me. Do you reckon, though, in all seriousness, it's even a remote possibility that greed might be a motive in Christian ministry? It's just a possibility, isn't it? For me, uh, the temptation is not so much about money, although I'm embarrassed to admit that I must love it because I do worry about it a lot. Um, That's embarrassing. But for me, um, the temptation really is to speak in such a way as that I'll be liked by people. I'm not motivated in Christian ministry um, by sexual motives or cash per se, but in the words of verse 4, I do find myself overly concerned about pleasing people rather than pleasing God. Uh, Or in the words of verse 6, I can find myself looking for praise from people. And I take it that's a live temptation because the Apostle Paul mentions it twice. 
and yet he can confidently say to the Thessalonians, and perhaps also to those people that are, that are having a crack at him, he can say, we didn't do that. We weren't like that. Weren't motivated by error, nor trickery, nor flattery, nor deceit, nor greed, not even by a desire for human praise, were motivated by a desire to please God. And we have proven to be entrusted by him to proclaim his gospel. He tests our hearts. He is our witness, says Paul. In other words, you ask him. And so we see that a successful ministry is one that is motivated by a desire to please God amongst all the competing motivations. So there's message, there's motives. And uh, next we turn to the question of method, which is really just to say that uh, a ministry that pleases God is going to have a certain methodology that is more up close and personal rather than kind of stand and deliver, command and control. I wonder if during um, the reading that Sarah read excellently, you'd have noticed the accumulation of family metaphors as the, the Apostle Paul described his interactions, his ministry method amongst the Thessalonians. Like in verse 7, they were like gentle children rather than burdensome overlords. Did you notice that? Uh, and actually in the next week's passage, the Apostle Paul will say he felt like an orphan when he was separated from them. Or in verse 7 and 8 of this passage, they were like young nursing mums in the way they cared and shared with the Thessalonians. In verse 11 and 12, they were like encouraging fathers among them. I suppose it's possible, you see, that Paul and Silas and Timothy could have waltzed into town with a sense of entitlement, both ordering the Thessalonians around and demanding a living from them, but they worked night and day toiling to support themselves, presumably in their own trades, as well as teaching the good news about Jesus to the Thessalonians. My guess is that if they set up shop permanently in Thessaloniki and things got big enough, someone might have had to turn it into a full-time gig because let me tell you, churches don't organize themselves. But the point of them being bivocational, I guess, is so that nothing gets in the way or becomes a stumbling block to the personal reception of these people to this gospel message. Still, they could have pulled rank, couldn't they? and asserted their authority, but they were gentle. They could have just presented their lectures and then left, but they cared for the Thessalonians. They could have kept a polite distance, but they loved the Thessalonians and shared their lives together. It was up close and personal. Well, they could have been harsh, but they were like an encouraging father. You know, um, gentlemen, fathers and grandfathers, and soon-to-be fathers and grandfathers, I reckon that's a take on God's view of what we are to be like as fathers, to encourage, comfort and urge rather than criticise, exasperate and withdraw from our children and grandchildren. The Apostle Paul and his companions were like that, not just with their own kids, but with the Thessalonians. Uh, Their care was gentle, it was proximate, it was close, it was caring and encouraging. It was not removed, onerous, discouraging and disinterested. I used to um, take groups of school leavers to uh, Vanuatu where we'd do some building work at an indigenous Bible college in the jungle and then sit on an impossibly beautiful beach for a few days at the end. just thought that was a better deal for school leavers than getting drunk and possibly pregnant at the Gold Coast. But for me, the most enjoyable part 
it wasn't actually sitting on the, the beautiful beach at the end. It was um, working side by side with the local Nivan Christian guys and girls. And one morning we were mixing concrete and I thought they had this ingenious way of doing it where they'd pile up the sand and the cement into a heap and then they'd slowly pour a bit of water in and then one of our crew would kind of mix it around with a shovel and then one of their crew would sort of mix it around with a shovel and we'd take it in turns back and forth like that and uh, doing it in kind of the traditional, you know, primitive Nivan way together. I thought, this is awesome. I'm, I'm loving this. Until later that afternoon, I saw a broken mechanical concrete mixer underneath a mango tree. I said, what, <laughs> what's with that there? And they said, well, the mechanical mixer was how they normally did it. It was just broken. They hadn't got around to fixing it. <laughs> I thought, oh, it's a bit sad. But you know what I thought? I don't care. Actually, I was really glad it was broken because that meant we had the time mixing the concrete together and it wasn't kind of traditional <laughs> and it wasn't efficient, much better than efficient. It was close, you see. And I think you'll find ministries that make a difference in people's lives won't often be the stand and deliver, you know, live streaming, big screen experience. Don't want to be too belligerent on this one, but I think it's going to be the ministries where we get alongside one another, where you can see the difference the gospel makes at ground level that involves the sharing of lives as well as the sharing of a message. Well, that seems to be the case here, the Apostle Paul's ministry that pleased God. And so we've had uh, message and motive and method. I'm smiling now because I'm getting to the word impact. I told you, it's hard not to do it without laughing. Impact, there it is. What is the impact of a ministry that pleases God? Well, as we saw last week, the impact of such a ministry is that people receive the message and they persevere with it. Read with me again verses 13 and 14. Picking up halfway through verse 13. When you received the word of God, you Thessalonians, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at de- indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. I think what he's saying is that when you have a ministry that centers on the gospel message, it's proclaimed by people who are motivated by a desire to please God when it's enacted in a gentle and personal manner, you are likely to see a ministry that has an impact in which people receive the message as it truly is, the words of God, not merely human wisdom. And furthermore, we see the Thessalonians persevere with that message in spite of severe suffering. He says the Thessalonian church suffered from their own countrymen, that's uh, pagan Greek Thessalonians, what the Judean churches, like in Jerusalem, suffered from the Jews. Opposition, strife, persecution. The Apostle Paul goes on to say that the Jews, of which he was one ethnically speaking, and he loved his countrymen, he says the Jews have very often opposed the plans of God. In the history of Israel, they killed the prophets that God sent them. In the time of Jesus, they killed him. And in the ministry of Paul, they did whatever they could to prevent Paul from proclaiming this good news to the non-Jewish, the Gentile world. But the main point for us today, like we saw last week, is that the Thessalonians stuck with it. They first received the gospel message as the word of God and they stuck with it, 
even through great difficulties. Well, you see, that is the impact of a ministry that pleases God. That's the kind of fruit such a ministry will bear in the lives of people. Now, the question before us, I guess, is what we make of these words and how should they shape our life? And uh, the Christian ministries we're involved in, the gospel ministry we're a part of. And I I was uh, thinking maybe it'd be helpful to kind of work this out under kind of two headings. You know, what does this mean for those who undertake gospel ministry? So let's call that section um, what this means for Bruce. Although in truth, it's going to apply to a wide range of people at St. Matthews, what this means for Bruce. And then we need to think through what it means for all of us as beneficiaries, as recipients of gospel ministry. Okay, what this means for us. What this means for Bruce what this means for us. So what does this mean for Bruce? In fact, I'm really talking about anybody who's involved in the gospel ministry, right? Whether you're, whether you're Jack who's going into jails, uh, whether you're leading a kids, group, uh, a kids church discussion group uh, or a growth group or you're at soup kitchen and you're having conversations with the guests, whatever it might be. Well, we need to think through our message. We need to think through our motives. We need to think through our methods. You know, Bruce, a lot of others, myself included, uh, need to continue to proclaim the message about the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation and restoration that is available only, and even that one word can get you in trouble, can't it? Only because he lived a perfect life among us, died a sacrificial death for us, and rose triumphantly from the dead, and in so doing provided a way for forgiveness of sins and a way back into right relationship with God. Though there will be pressures to preach other messages or to dilute the clear, simple, and beautiful message of the gospel, or there are pressures to avoid aspects of it that make us feel uncomfortable, such as talking about hell, or judgment. Did you notice last verse of chapter 1, last verse of chapter 2, both talk about the wrath of God? Did you wake up this morning going, I cannot wait to hear about the wrath of God today? Gets me out of bed in the morning. It's precious to avoid talking about that sort of stuff. And Bruce is not to do that. Even if it will make him unpopular, and even if it makes us feel uncomfortable. He and many others need to frequently examine his motivations for bringing this message to bear upon us as the congregations of St. Matthews. Does he proclaim this message uh, simply because it allows him to enjoy life in manly? Or the kudos that is attached to being senior minister of a significant church? Or because he's a figure of some standing in the local community? Or because there's some aura of being the person on the platform or whatever? You see, he he needs to keep checking, adjusting and aligning his motivations with a simple desire to please God. And there'll be literally hundreds of us who will need to do exactly the same. In the church of our size, it's simply not possible for everyone to be in close proximity to him a lot of the time. But he needs to make sure at least some people are that he does for a few what he would really like to do for all. And if you're not in close proximity to him or to me, or it's not because we don't like you, it's just we can't do it for everyone. want to do for a few 
what we really like to do for all, which is not just stand and deliver, but it's stand alongside, laboring, toiling, working hard, but not at a distance. Yeah, those back rows there, uh, I stacked those chairs before the five o'clock service so that there's enough room for the night church people to have supper. Nothing remarkable about that. I, I've um, stacked chairs every Sunday um, for the last 20 years. So it's unremarkable, right? Not a big deal at all. Nothing amazing. One of our women who was a singer here um, before she moved interstate just a wee while ago, she saw me doing that once and uh, she was amazed. She thought it was remarkable. Um, that the minister stacked the chairs. Now, let me say, in all honesty, completely unremarkable. Like, who cares, stacking the chairs? But it was amazing to her because at her previous church, the minister never stacked the chairs. He was only ever ushered in to do the talk. And then he got ushered back to, I don't know, the celebrity green room where all the brown M&Ms had been taken out of the jar. I don't know. And you never actually saw him at ground level. Now, I don't know what you think. I just think that doesn't seem right. Do you? So Bruce is going to need to be careful with his message, uh, with his motives and with his methods, as will a lot of us. And then I think he can expect the impact to follow. And moreover, he will have a ministry that pleases God. And as I said, I think that applies to many of us who serve at kids' church, soup kitchen, lead growth groups, serve in the youth ministry, etc., 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 etc. I've missed your ministry. I'm sorry about that. You are included. Message, motives, methods. And the impact will follow. What does it mean, though, for all of us, and really I'm including all of us, who receive or benefit from a ministry that pleases God? I mean, we can rightly expect all those things of Bruce, but I think what it means for us is that we ought to be receptive to any ministry that is conducted by people among us who proclaim the gospel clearly, simply, energetically, even if they don't have a podcast audience of 10,000, even if they don't have a church of 1,000. You know, when you see your growth group leader, your kid's youth group leader, or, or a musician, whoever it is, motivated by a basic desire to please God rather than draw attention to themselves, we ought to be receptive to what they say, even if we find it uncomfortable. We need to take a deep breath before we hit the outrage button so quickly at something they say. You know, for people that live by the beach, we are so pent up. Like, it's pathetic. We've got sea breezes and we're tightly strung. Just got to breathe before you hit the outrage button, you know? Where it is clear that someone engaged in the gospel ministry does not think of themselves as better than the person, the people she's serving, but is gentle and encouraging and giving of herself, we ought to listen carefully and well, even if we find that a difficult conversation to hear. If those involved in gospel ministries of all kind need to be careful about message, motive, method, then we as the beneficiaries of their labours ought to be receptive to their ministry among us, just as the Thessalonians were to the Apostle Paul. And we ought to be looking for like fruitfulness in our own lives, frequently checking ourselves and asking, am I receiving this word as though it were the word of God? Or am I complaining? Am I resistant? Because I didn't like that illustration. Because the PowerPoint lacked creativity. Because they didn't do it exactly how I would do it. They didn't say it 
the way I would say it? And then am I sticking with this gospel word? Am I persevering with it? Even if I'm ridiculed by my wider culture, even if I'm tempted to ditch it by the remnants of my sinful nature, even if I just want to give up because it feels hard. Those who bring the gospel message to us need to ask questions of themselves, their motives and their methods frequently. But the rest of us need to also ask questions of ourselves. Am I receptive to this well-motivated ministry? Am I persevering with this word? Because if the answer is yes, then we might just have a ministry that truly pleases God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father God, we must admit that we are enamoured and so encouraged by the Thessalonians who seem so perseverant with the Christian faith despite strong opposition after such a short time of ministry among them by the Apostle Paul. Today we recognise that um, to be involved in a ministry that pleases you, there needs to be a clear message pure motives, personal methods. And Lord, for the many hundreds of us across this church that are involved in gospel ministry, uh, help us to be checking those frequently. For all of us here who are recipients of that ministry, let us be receptive to it. And let us be asking questions of ourselves so that we both receive your word, we persevere with it and let it do it let it do its work in our lives for the glory of Jesus in whose name we pray Amen